Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good morning, Jundo. How are you today? I I am very fine, but I got to tell you, we have a rule to be together at six o'clock, which is why I showed up at eight because I break the rules. I'm just I'm just free. Rules mean nothing to me. I just do what I want. You say six, I show up when I I want. So I'm here. I am two hours <laughs> late. Part of it is I, I dozed <laughs> off in the chair back there. But uh, anyway, my apologies. Good to be here. Yes, good to be here. I wish you would follow this sort of rule because. I have a strict schedule, and I have to keep to that schedule, and I have things to do, and you've disturbed my schedule, Jundo. Well, isn't that what rules and laws are all about? They keep harmony in society. They they make sure that we all stay within the parameters of what we're supposed to do, so we don't have these little conflicts and tensions. You know, I don't just go through red lights because I want to. I don't just disregard stop signs when they're pedestrians at the crosswalk because I feel good. We have rules, rules in this society. They're the glow of this society to keep us together. You made a comment on the Tree Leaf Forum recently, and I noted this down. You said part of Zen tradition is to follow silly rules in order to become free of silly rules. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, uh, I think back in the 50s, the beatniks, you know, the cool folks, they had the uh, uh, first impression that Zen man is being, you know, what you want. You know, follow your, your muse and, and don't do what the man wants, you know. Just uh, break the rules, man. They're the establishment, you know, and we're going to break all the rules. And then... It was gradually discovered that there is no more rule-bound, tradition-bound, procedure-bound, stuffy old ritual-bound tradition than Zen Buddhism. It's the opposite of what everybody thought. It's not only that, but when you read some of Dogen's writings, and Dogen, we see him as our sort of patron saint, right? He's the guy who figured everything out. And he's got these writings about these detailed things that the monks have to do in the monastery. Obviously, these aren't the ones we read the most because some of his writings were philosophical and some were, in a sense, he wrote a rule book for his monastery. But he was very strict about the way the monks had to act. Yes, I forget the Sanskrit term but it, to describe Dogen, but it vaguely translates to anal retentive. Yes, Dokin <laughs> Dokin was a manuals guy. He, you know, Shobo Genza was wonderful. It's about uh, his uh, experiences of the universe and transcending time and finding uh, all of reality in every grain of sand, plus detailed rules that go on for pages of pages of who turns left and when you bow and which hand you use to light the incense and who goes first in the line and then what you say this and the other thing. And oh my gosh, yes. Uh, I think life in his monastery was morning to night from the t- and truly from the time you brush your teeth 
to how you go to the toilet, to how you wash your hands after going to the toilet, never forget to wash your hands, to uh, <laughs> how you sit zazen, to everything else, how you eat, right? Rules, rules, and more rules. Yet the goal of Zen is to find some sort of freedom. Is it possible to become free within that strictness of rules? I, I would dare say that the strictness of rules is the lesson in freedom. Ask me how. How can strict rules be a lesson in freedom? Very good question. The um, point is that the true freedom is within us. Now, I, 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 I'm... This is a story I've told uh, a number of times. If, if you've heard the story before, just say yes. That's the story number 17. I know that one. But it's the time I was a volunteer <laughs> in the maximum security prison in Florida. You know that one? No, I've never heard this one. Okay. Maximum security life in Florida is very much like being in a monastery, asterisk, without the guards and the shivs and the things like that, you know, the violence. It, right. I, it's worse, okay? I'm not trying to say that uh, a, a monastery is a maximum security prison in Florida, nor am I saying that the life of a maximum security prisoner should be made light of. These guys have it rough because, fortunately, in the monastery, you didn't have to look right and left to see, you know, if if there was a, a you know, white nationalist out to get you that day or anything like that. So I'm not trying to, to make humor here. But when I was leading the group for the prisoners, the Zen group, I said, there are some similarities. The walls of the monastery and the walls of the prison are nothing compared to the ability of the heart to knock down those walls and find freedom amidst all the restraints. Now, again, those guys are under real violence, real threat, and I'm not making humor of that, because in the monastery, it's supposed to be an ideal place to practice, even though it's rule-bound. But it's your heart that makes the resistance, you know. But it's no different from us. Don't you follow rules? Don't you have things you got to do? Taxes you got to pay? I've got things I've got to do. I've got to record a podcast on time. And when someone's late, that disturbs my entire day. <clears throat> I've got to make sure that I've paid all my taxes and my bills and my electricity and I've got to stop at the stoplight like you, and except we drive on the wrong side of the road here, which makes it a little more complicated. But yes, there's rules everywhere. Some of the rules we have no control over, but we also have our own rules that we build in and around ourselves that we might be able to remove, to unfetter ourselves, to discover some freedom. Well, we have rules that we create within ourselves that are like a shadow. We can make some terrible rules for ourselves inside. And of course, Zen says that we can re hit the reset button on that, and we don't have to be bound by that. But also the rules on the outside, we sometimes cannot change those any more than a monk can change the rules of the monastery. But we can, how to say, find the ability to flow with circumstances amidst the rules. Uh, the, the easiest example, you ever been in a traffic jam? Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah. A couple thousand times. I live right outside of Tokyo. Life in Tokyo is if you're driving, you sit in a traffic jam. There are people who have been in a traffic jam there for 20 days. They find them dead behind the wheel. I'm not kidding. It's terrible <laughs> in there. But uh, one of the things you can do in a traffic jam or any other situation is you can sit there and mull and go, this is terrible. I'm late. I got to get someplace. Or you can say, 
here I am. That's the way it is. This is just what I got to do and just be there. And of course, Buddhism teaches us in all the rules and the restrictions to just accept, have equanimity, to flow with it. That doesn't mean it's always going to be fun, but just be there. It is actually wonderful to learn the freedom within rules. There's a rule in driving. Wherever you are, there's a speed limit, right? Unless you're on the Autobahn in Germany, which makes no sense to let them drive at any speed. I never drive above the speed limit. And it just seems to me that this is a rule that's for our safety and just for respect of others. And I know lots of people who do drive above the speed limit because they're in a hurry to get someplace. And it just seems that there are rules like that. Why bother to break them? Because you feel like you need to break them. You don't want to be bound by them. Whereas there are a lot of rules we follow that are just respect for other people. And in some ways, it's easier to just follow those rules. It's easier to follow the rules, and it's it's good to keep society together. We're going to talk, by the way, in a bit about the time it may be necessary to break some rules. Sure. Not all rules, not all rules deserve following, but uh, you have to be careful when you break them. But one thing I want to point out to you is it, when the monk or uh, even uh, any anyone takes a jukai ceremony, undertaking the precept cer- ceremony, the first three precepts can be do good, do not do evil. And the third one, now it's debated. There are two translations or two interpretations. One says, and work to save all sentient beings. But the very common translation is, do good, avoid to do harm, do evil, follow the rule. Hmm. And it's very strange. Why is that the first precept? And the reason is that one should not be overly selfish and should follow the rules. You're playing baseball, don't cheat. You're paying the taxes that support our society, don't cheat on your taxes. You know, you're driving down the road, follow the rules of the road. You're in the monastery, everyone's showing up for the ceremony at at 6 o'clock, don't show up at 8. Sorry again, Kirk, I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) But sometimes rules can be a stricture, a way of controlling society when you think of You know, in the United States, when there were rules that black people couldn't use the same doors as white people couldn't sit in the same place in the bus. And these rules have to be broken. But this is a a, a gradual change in society that's needed to overturn those rules. And breaking the rules is a step toward changing the rules. Yes. Therefore, uh, you have uh, Cohen's corollary to the... uh, Precept that says follow the rules, and that is there are times to break the rules, but here, here's a good rule of thumb. Do it for what you truly feel is the greater good. Asterisk, which should be a nonviolent good, really to bring peace in society. Not, for example, to eliminate, you know, that those people you don't like, you know, the, the Germans did away with the Constitution and things like that in the Nazi Germany because they, they wanted to do violence. Not, nothing like that. I mean, break rules for the greater good. That's really a good. The first precept said, do good, avoid harm. If you're going to break the rules, make sure it is truly for not your selfish reason, not for hate or violence, not because you wish to steal someone's property. Do it for the greater good. I almost sound like a philosopher. You do. 
So Picasso famously said, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. Mm. Obviously, in art, what he's saying is you learn to draw figuratively and then you can learn to draw those funny things that Picasso drew. Or Jackson Pollock probably learned to draw people before he started splattering paint on the canvases. And you may or may not appreciate it as art, but there is, you have to have the bases to be able to create your own type of art. It was the same in those old Zen koans. You know, the ones that uh, the old beatniks took to be signs of freedom because people are slapping each other, doing outrageous things. Even there's one <laughs> where a guy takes a Buddha statue and burns it. You know, guy calls a, a Buddha an old uh, shit stick. You know that one? We've talked about that before. All those ones, right? Footnote, there is a chapter in the show Shobogenzo about how to use the shit stick. Yes, yes. Very detailed. Goes on for pages about all the <laughs> bowing and everything else involved. Really. Uh, but anyway, in the koan, if you look what they were doing, the life of the monk was incredibly regimented. And what they would find in that regimentation is there is a time to make a small statement by breaking the rules. So, for example, the rule said, light the incense with the right hand. Guy would go up there and say, look at me, lit it with the left hand. And everyone would say, dude, man, <laughs> you're going to get in trouble. Or, wow, that, that he, you know, that was quite a statement. Or a guy goes up to the master, you know, gives the master a slap. You know, if you're doing it for the right reason, they, everyone would appreciate that now you're saying that you see beyond the rules. But they didn't do this like day in, day out. They would do this in a very refined, small way to show that they had freedom in following the rules. So you need to know when to break the rules and when not to. Well, how do we know? Because on the one hand, people might want to break rules just because they don't like them. They feel that the rules aren't made for them. Talking about driving above the speed limit. And that's not a political statement. That's nothing. That's not saying anything important. That's just being selfish. So how can you know when breaking the rules has value rather than just being an asshole? Well, uh, look at folks who protest and get arrested for it sometimes to make a statement. Look at times when a government is truly unjust and there are reasons to oppose uh, that unjust government, even overturn it, march in the streets. Uh, there are times when there is real uh, wrongs being done in society and we must resist, right? First off, frankly, if at all possible, we're nonviolent people. The way a Gandhi, the way a Martin Luther King, I think that's the first place we go. You don't pick up a gun. You don't throw a bomb to make a point. It makes it worse. The Buddha said, do not meet hate with hate. It just makes more hate. But there are times when you may feel that you have to resist. If you truly feel it's just, you truly feel that there is no choice, there may be times to resist injustice. I cannot tell you when. Nobody can. It's not written in stone. That's the beauty of this world. You always have people disagree on what the greater good is. But if you're doing something, make sure it's for peace. Make sure it's for justice. Make sure it's not just to oppress some other people and to steal what they have. Make sure it's not you're doing it out of hate for another group. Make sure that it is for the greater good. So bring this back to Zen practice, and we do have a lot of rules, and 
we're not in monasteries, right? And we don't have to follow them precisely. But it's important to know not only that the rules exist, but why they exist. Well, sometimes we can know, and sometimes we just have to trust uh, uh, why the rules are there. Uh, A lot of Zen rules, frankly, are ridiculously inefficient and arcane, and nobody knows. (laughs) I remember I went up to a monk one time, and I said to him, you know, why do you do this? And he didn't know. He said, he turned to me, he said, we do this because that is the way we do. (laughs) We've always done it this way. Yeah, but if you go to the temple down the street, they do it a different way, and they're convinced that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. Everybody's convinced their way is the right way. It's not a matter... In traditional society, this is a Western thing that we need reason. In traditional societies, you just did it because that was the way it was done. And there's a certain beauty in that. In the absurdity, your heart demands a reason. Why do you always demand a reason? Why don't you just let the reason be? It's true that if we overthink why we do things and why we don't do things and what the rules are, that introduces a lot of friction, doesn't it? And having the rules, and particularly for the monks in the monastery and the prisoners in the maximum security prison, having the rules means that there's less for them to worry about and to think about. Uh, Every spring which is right around the corner, I have to water the flowers and prune the weeds. Why? Well, that's not a rule. You're just helping nature thrive. That's a little bit different. Well, shouldn't the rules be the same? And they are rules. They're rules that I need to do this at a certain time. And I ask, why do the, why do the weeds grow? All my heart can do is say that the weeds grow because, as that monk said, that is how the weeds grow. And we do what we have to do because that is what we're, is done. As long as rules are not unjust, uh, sometimes we just do things because that is how it's done. And other times we may say, well, it should be a little more efficient. It should be a little better. Uh, right now, I'm in my, my, my daughter's PTA in the school. I sit there through meetings and I go, why do they do things like this? Why do they do this? But I have to sit there. Because I'm just one parent, and you go, that is the way it's done. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Both of us are living in countries in which we did not grow up. And so we tend to be more sensitive to rules or or just the way things are done because they're different. Now, you've been in Japan for decades, and I've been outside the United States for decades, but you can't not be sensitive to the way something's done differently. Yeah, that's that's one reason. The other reason is if I broke a bigger law here, I'd be out on my keister uh, out of the next plane. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's uh, another reason. No, the Japanese are very much about uh, proper ways of doing things. Even even if you go to baseball, they're very rules. One time I went to see a Yankees game here. The Yankees came to play the Tokyo Giants. And I'm sitting in the stands and I see the umpire. And the umpire makes a bad call. And there was like, me and my, my New York buddy, we're sitting there, we go, hey, umpire, what's with you? Hey. And people look at me like, try can we get the umpire? <laughs> I said, yeah, you're supposed to, it's the Yankee, you get with the umpire. They, did you see the call he made? <laughs> Be respectful. He's the umpire. He's doing the best he can. And he made a call. Be quiet. So I, that's, <laughs> that's Japanese baseball. That's what you do. You follow the rules. 
I guess that's why baseball is so popular in Japan, because it is a very, I mean, all sports have rules, but baseball is particularly rule bound in the fact that the action's not continuous. And it's very structured, isn't it? It's structured, but it's exactly what you said before. The great pitchers, for example, the great players, somehow within the traditions, the high bound traditions, uh, they find their own way, you know. But how about you? Are you, are, are you, are there any rules you break? Well, I don't want to say anything that will implicate me in an international conspiracy. No, no. I, I, <laughs> I, as your attorney, I advise you uh, to plead the fifth here. Yes. Okay. I tend to be, and I've just always been like this, like I follow all the rules of the road because I was once in a very serious accident, which had nothing to do with breaking the rules, but still I'm aware of the danger of car accidents. I open doors for people. I say hello to people. I don't, I try to be part of the community as much as possible. Now, there might be rules that I break that I don't really pay attention to, but no big rules. Sometimes I play the music a little bit too loud. Now, fortunately, I don't have any neighbors close enough that it would bother. But if I did, if I was in an apartment, then that would be a rule that would have to be respected. We we all have to break the rules sometimes. And I think that's even true in the, the monastery. Did I, I, I ever tell you the time I hung out with the bad monks? No. Are there bad monks? Well, they're not bad. They they hang out around the back of the monastery smoking cigarettes and all? Yes, they were hanging out in the back of the monastery smoking cigarettes. <laughs> I, I couldn't sleep. You know, I'm in there. It's the middle of a session. I get up and I, I quietly sneak out and I smell smoke. And I go behind the monastery and there's <laughs> like these three or four guys, the bad monks. Okay. And, and their girlfriends had kind of shown up there, you know. It was terrible, you know. And they, I said, "Can I, can I bum a cigarette?" I, did, I used to smoke at the time, and the guy reaches in his robes here, here, man, have a cigarette, you know, you know. And they're sitting there, okay. So they did this. There may be a time to do that, and and sometimes I'd find them, you know, no, on the off hours they're playing cards in the room, you know. Even monks have off times, all right. <laughs> now those same guys, the next day, do you think that they were the cut ups in class? No. I learned to respect them so much when it came time to do what needed to be done, whether it was a ceremony, whether it was eating orioki eating, anything. They were the fellows who were putting their heart and soul in it. Uh, Buddhists don't have a soul, but you know what you mean. Yeah, but uh, yeah, sure, they had their time. They they broke the rules. All right, no one's on twenty four seven. Even the Buddha probably, you know, had his uh, times. He he said I. I'm checking out as the Buddha today. But these guys, when it came time to it, they would follow the rules. I was thinking about the correspondence between the maximum security prison and the monastery. Do the monks ever get out on parole? Or are they condemned to stay there for their entire lives? Or is it just a transitory thing? They get sentenced to three years in the monastery and then they're free? Uh, first off, uh, in Japan, there are some uh, professional shall we say, like professors in the monastery who make it a long-term thing. But even they, most of them, not all, most of them down the hill, they have their family in a house. So, oh, it's five o'clock. Sorry, I got to get home for dinner. So they go down the hill. You know, <laughs> so, so, so the monastery is a day job. Yeah. The monastery is the day job. Yes. They're on shift. Uh, and, but most of the young monks uh, are there for a few years before they, in, in Japan anyway, before they go off 
to the parish temple where they have a family, they have their own kids, you know. And so they're only in the monastery for a few years, two or three. Now, even then, they're not in the monastery all year round, usually. They have, to, you know, they have time. They're in there for a few months, and they, they may be off to visit some other teacher or even to go home and see their family for a bit, and then they come back to the monastery. So, you know, there's a time to be following the rules, and there's a time to be on, you know, kind of uh, off-season. We tend to think of Christian monks and monasteries like the Benedictines as being a lifetime thing, so that's not the case for Zen monasteries. It, it may be in, I don't want to speak for Korea and China and places like that, and you may actually have their monks who spend their whole life there. But as we spoke about before, then that is their family, you know. Mm. That is where they live. It's not like they go home to their family. The, the monastery, the monks there are their family. Plus, even then, come on, they get days off, they go to travel, you know. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, there, there are monks who may keep themselves in the monastery for years and years. I, I personally, I like that. You go in the monastery for a while, then you go out, then you go back in. You know, it's kind of like college. Hey, it's summer. It's spring break, guys. You know, where the monks go? Hey, we're done with session. Off to Daytona Beach. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, what rules are you going to break today, Jundo? I promise you, I will be here on time next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.